0: should I go? If you say that you are mine, I'll be here till the end of time. So you got to let me know. Thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm Pastor Sean Cole, I'm the lead pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church. In Sterling, Colorado, I also serve as an adjunct professor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. You know, a lot of you probably have your favorite podcast or websites or Facebook or Twitter or YouTube channels that you go to that you listen to. Uh, some of you may go to Al Moler's The Briefing. Some of you like to listen to Dr. James White at Alpha and Omega Ministries. Uh, some of you like to listen to Fighting for the Faith with Chris Rosebro. Or others of you may like to listen to Apologia Radio or J.D. Hall at the Pulpit and Pen. Uh, some of you listen to the Reform pubcast and maybe some of you listen to uh, Latin Flower Soteriology. 101 or Theology Unplugged and, and there's all these different websites and podcasts and YouTube channels that maybe you like to go listen to. And the, the big question that, that often comes up is what's the what is the nature of the the target ministry of these types of podcasts? Because you hear these terms like so some people would say, you know, that's a discernment blog or that's a discernment website or that's an apologetics that 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 person focuses on apologetics. For example, James White, he he focuses on apologetics, giving a an apologetic for his for the Christian faith and doing debates, moderated debates and things like that. And then you have discernment websites. And then you have a new thing I'm seeing, and that is um, people saying they're, they're in polemics. They're, they're not just a discernment blog. They're engaged in polemics. And it's interesting because polemics comes from the Greek word for war. And it usually means, a polemics usually means like a hostile or a confrontational or an aggressive argumentation against someone else's opinions. And so it's not just we're going to be discerning, we're going to have a discernment podcast, but we're going to actually be aggressive. We're going to be confrontational. Uh, we may actually get um, uh, pretty pointed in our tone. And so sometimes we have to understand you know, what, what it is we're listening to. And so what I want to do on this podcast is really talk more about discernment. Discernment. I, for one, am not a polemicist. I don't think God has called me to go on a rampage and to be confrontational and to call out people uh, by name and to write emails and, and to be in the public eye as a vortex for controversy. I think a perfect example of, of a person like this is, is J.D. Hall. I do listen to the pulpit and pen from time to time, and and J.D. Hall makes no sense. Um, uh, makes no apologies for the fact that he is a polemicist. And so if you look at the pulpit bunker and you look at a lot of other places where his name shows up, he's usually at the vortex of controversy. There's always um, he, you know, some type of confrontational nature to his, to his ministry. And so he's more of a polemicist. Uh, James White and others are more apologetic-oriented. They, they do moderated debates. Um, I'm not an apologist. I'm not a polemicist. I am a local pastor. I'm a pastor of a local church, I'm also a college professor, I'm also a father, I'm also a husband, and just a Christian in general. I I am a Christian, and so the the thing about it is, is, I think regardless of what stripe you are as far as whether you're a pastor or you're just a lay person or whatever, we need to understand the importance of discernment, having discernment in our culture. We live in an age of spiritual confusion all around us. And so it's very, very important that we be discerning. And so what I want to do on this podcast is just talk about discernment. And I want to ask a few really big questions and then hopefully look at the scriptures to be able to answer that. So the first question I want to ask is, why do we need to be discerning? I mean what what what's going on in our culture right now? Why biblically do we need to be discerning? What what's the purpose for being discerning? Well, let's start with Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. Because I think that what he says is oftentimes misunderstood and, and leveled and charges are leveled against people that are practicing discernment. And they don't quite understand the context of what Jesus is saying. This is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Listen to the words of our Lord Jesus. He says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there's the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly how to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This passage of scripture has commonly been misunderstood, and it actually is probably the most popular verse of the Bible that non-Christians like to quote against Christians, judge not that you be judged. So what is Jesus saying here? Is is Jesus teaching here that we should never, ever make moral judgments? We should never be discerning. We should never practice church discipline. Is that what he's saying? Or is he teaching that we should not pridefully stand in the place of God and hypocritically judge others without examining ourselves? You see, we are to make judgments, especially as a church family, in regards to unrepentant sexual sins and issues related to church discipline. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul addresses the church in Corinth and they're proud and they're boasting and they're arrogant about this incestuous relationship in the church. And and Paul basically gets on them and says, listen, guys, you need to exercise church discipline. Notice what he says here in 1 Corinthians 5, 4 through 6. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present. With the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Paul's saying, listen, when you assemble together as a church family, you've got to make a moral judgment. You've got to make a discernment. You've got to make a decision here and practice church discipline and excommunicate this guy. You, in a sense, have to judge him unfit to continue to be a member in good standing of your church and you corporately as a body have to remove him we're to make judgments about false teachers who preach another gospel listen to what paul says in galatians 1 8 through 9 he says Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say it again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. That word accursed, anathema, let him be eternally condemned in hell. And so Paul gives us warnings here that yes, we have to make moral judgments. We have to make theological judgments. What Jesus is saying here in Matthew 7 is we cannot stand in the place of God and pronounce a judgment on someone's salvation as if we will somehow be exempt ourselves on the day of judgment. Paul tells us in Romans 14, 10 through 12, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Jesus here in Matthew 7 is really addressing the issue with this illustration here of taking the plank out of our own eye, the log out of our own eye, before we judgmentally address the speck in our brother's eye. And the issue here is, is selfish pride that blinds us from seeing our own sin while we stand in judgment of others. But, and so that, that's easy to understand there. But what I want you to understand is I want you to read carefully what Jesus says. Look at verse 5. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Does Jesus here say we should never address sin or never confront areas of weakness or, or ever be discerning? In verse 5, he says, take the speck <clears throat> out of your own eye. Examine yourself, confess sin, make sure you're right with God, and then you will have the clear vision to take the speck out of your, other, out of your brother's eye. Jesus gives us permission to address sin in other brothers and sisters lives he just wants to make sure that we have dealt with it personally so a part of discernment is that if we're going to address issues if we're going to address sin if we're going to address theology if we're going to address any issues we've got to first make sure that we're right with the Lord that we have confessed sin that we are not standing in judgment upon somebody else when we're guilty of those same sins but we still have the right to Jesus says, once you've done, gone through that process, to address sin. Paul gives us permission too in Galatians 6, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So that whole judge not lest you be judged has often been misinterpreted, mischaracterized, thrown back in the face of Christians to say you can never make any moral judgments. You can never do church discipline. Who are you to say there's anything wrong? Uh, And so when it comes to discernment or discernment blogs or discernment ministries or or any type of, uh, of somebody wanting to declare truth, biblical truth, and it it, it chafes against the culture and people don't want to hear it and it may sound offensive, the first thing people will often say is, well, you're judging. What right do you have to judge somebody else? And they're misunderstanding, they're misapplying, they're mistranslating, they're misinterpreting that passage of scripture by Jesus. Because in the same sermon on the mount, in the same chapter in Matthew In verses 15 through 20, you have Jesus' teaching on false teachers that bear bad fruit. Listen to Jesus' words. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from the thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Recognize who? False prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but are inwardly ravenous wolves. Jesus addresses False prophets, false teachers, people that are going to come in and teach poisonous things. And he says, you'll eventually know them because the fruit of their life, the fruit of their ministry, the fruit of their theology, it's going to come out. You can't hide who you truly are. If a, if a tree is poisoned from the inside out, it's going to produce bad fruit. Now, the pastoral epistles, especially First and Second Timothy, really address this issue of the need for discernment in relation to false teachers coming um, on the scene. And so in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, Paul says, "...now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons." So we've got to acknowledge right from the front that there are people that are teaching deceitful things, doctrines of demons, and that they are causing people to wander from the faith. Listen to 1 Timothy 6, verses 3-5. through If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and are deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Let me just give you some observations about false teachers, at least that I've noticed over the years that have come into to churches that I've been in and and people that you see on maybe Christian television or whatever, false teachers do not come in announcing that they're false teachers. They don't have a big name tag on that says, hello, my name is Wolf in sheep's clothing. They appear innocent. They appear harmless. They appear nice. As a matter of fact, most false teachers are really nice. Most people like them. They're nice. They're inoffensive. They may have great personalities, but Jesus says that's that's the part. That, that's the part they play. They're, they are inwardly ravenous wolves, but they look like sheep. So they don't just come in announcing what they're doing. The second thing we notice about false teachers is that their ultimate desire is to destroy and devour. Ultimately, to destroy and to devour. They want to destroy God's people. They want to devour God's people. They want to destroy God's flock. And some of them may not be conscious they're doing this. Some of them may just want to be caught up in ego. They're caught up in false doctrine because that's what they've been taught and they don't know any different. But ultimately, the the ultimate end of false doctrine, the ultimate end of false teaching, the ultimate end of that is destruction. And the primary way we recognize them is by their fruits. And so there comes a point in time where, personality aside, you look at the fruit of a person's theology, the fruit of their ministry, and the fruit of their lifestyle, and you have to make a judgment. I mean, Jesus, it's implied here in the Sermon on the Mount, you will know them by their fruit, that, that there's this discerning of the fruit in a person's life. And so, for example, if there's a teacher on Christian television or, or a YouTube channel or somebody that you listen to and their theology is just wacky and off, Jesus gives us permission to examine that fruit, the fruit of their theology to see if it's in accords with the sound words that Paul says. Or maybe their lifestyle is off and they're, they're involved in some, some type of sexual sin or whatever or, or their attitude. And so I don't think we can ever play this game where we can never talk about somebody's ministry or somebody's um, fruit or somebody's theology in fears that we may be judging them. I think we're given permission to examine the fruit of a person's theology, teaching, ministry, and life. Now, it's different than just saying, I just don't like that guy. I don't like his delivery, Uh, he's kind of boring, I don't like his accent, I don't like the way his hair looks. I mean, those are petty things. We're not talking about those types of things, making judgments on those types of things. We're talking about substantive things. Now, it's interesting, in the book of Jude, Jude's an interesting little book if you ever have time to study it. Uh, Jude was going to write about salvation. He said, I really wanted to sit down and write to you about our common salvation. I wanted you to write to contend for the faith of the salvation. And it seems like the rest of the book of Jude would be about salvation, the themes of salvation. But evidently, there were these false teachers that had crept in unawares into the church and were leading them astray. And so Jude says, I'm going to have to leave that for another time. And so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he addresses these false teachers that had crept into the church. And in verses 10 through 16, he gives some very um, graphic uh, descriptions of these, these false teachers. He says, these people blaspheme all they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love fest as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Forever. And then later on, down in, in verse 16, it says, These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Think about the strong language that, that Jude uses to describe these people. Brute beasts, fallen angels. Uh, related to Cain. Talks about they're they're in the way of Cain. We know Cain was the first murderer. Talk about Balaam's error. Balaam was the one that led the Israelites astray um, back in in the book of Numbers, especially into sexual immorality. Korah's rebellion. Korah's the one that rebelled against Moses. But it's interesting. He gives these five descriptions that come from the natural realm to describe these false teachers. He says, you're, number one, blemishes at love feasts. Literally, the word is hidden rocks. Now, if you've ever gone um, out to sea or you've ever been on a boat, these are rocks that jut out into the sea or maybe a hidden reef where a ship would run aground or get shipwrecked. And the love feast here was an early Christian practice of eating the Lord's Supper together together in fellowship. And both rich and poor would gather. Um, It was a great experience. In Corinth, they were abusing it. They were getting drunk. They weren't being respectful um what he's saying is that they're blemishes in their at the love feast. they are the ones that are like hidden rocks they're they're gonna shipwreck your faith they're dangerous. It also says here that they are shepherds feeding themselves they feed themselves first they're false shepherds they take care of their own needs first i can't uh, when i think about taking care of your own needs first i think about all these ungodly pyramid schemes that you see on tbn and other places with people like jesse duplantis and kenneth copeland and crefo dollar and these guys that are wanting to buy their million dollar jets so that they can go across the world and not have to be um, in, in a as kenneth copeland would say he doesn't want to have to be in an airplane with a bunch of demons Probably the most offensive statement I've heard in a long time. Um, He's so beyond being on an airplane with other regular people that he calls demons that he needs to have his own private jet so that he can get around the world to support his his lifestyle. Jude also says they're waterless clouds. Think about that. Think about that image for a moment, a waterless cloud. What does a cloud promise? If you're a farmer and you see clouds coming and it's been, it's been a famine or a dry time on the land, a cloud says, oh, wow, it's going to rain. We're going to have a thundershower. We're going we're to get rain. We're going to get water on the ground. But they're waterless clouds. These men are pretenders. They give great promises, but they're empty. They're fruitless trees. They're barren trees. They have no spiritual life. They're not only dead, but Jude says they're twice dead. Jesus, in Matthew 15, 12-13, the disciples came to him and said, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And Jesus answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not not planted will be rooted up. (laughs) That's a classic answer to a statement. I mean, think about the disciples here. They're so politically correct, and they're worried that, Jesus, you've offended the Pharisees. The Pharisees are really, really offended by what you said. You, you had some strong statements to the Pharisees, and they were offended by that, Jesus. And Jesus flat out says, Well, every plant my heavenly father has not been planted will be rooted up, meaning these aren't among my elect. These are false teachers, and they're going to be uprooted. They're, they're, they're fruitless trees, they're barren trees. Jude also says, Wild waves. Um, this whole idea of, of like the scummy foam coming up. On the side of the shore. Wandering stars. They're like shooting stars that make a big flash but initially burn out. They're full of error. They don't stay on the path. Think about Polaris for a moment, the North Star. It gives you direction, navigational direction. These are wandering stars. They provide no direction. But the thing that Jude says there that is really, really scary is that. He says in verse 13, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. The gloom of utter darkness. Now, I don't want to be dogmatic on this. and I don't want to build a full theology on this. This is just a personal opinion of mine. But I believe this passage teaches that there may be a hotter place in hell For false teachers who knowingly, unrepentantly, habitually led people astray through their false teaching. And so, we can't build a full theology on that, but it says utter darkness. So, we live in a world where there's false teachers, Jesus says. They come as sheep. I mean, they they look as sheep, but they're, they're, they're ravenous wolves. Paul says there's doctrines of demons. Jude says that there are all these um, despicable descriptions of these false teachers. So the reality is we live in a world of false teachers and false teaching. And in today's world, it's all around us. I mean, with the proliferation of the internet, of YouTube, of Facebook, of Twitter, of podcast, of TBN and, and, and Daystar and other channels like that on, on satellite, it's all around us. And, and it's very concerning as a pastor because you really have to be warning your congregation of the dangers out there. And, you know, when I first came to the church over 10 years ago, um, there was a, a group of ladies that were doing a Joyce Meyer Bible study. Um, and it wasn't, this was, you know, they were without a pastor and these ladies had decided to do, you know, Joyce Meyer Bible study. And so, um, I found out they were doing it. It was like my second week maybe um, at the church. And so I I went up and and addressed the ladies and said, listen, um, I understand you guys are doing Joyce Meyer. Um, If you want to do that, you can do that on your own, but this cannot be under the auspices of Emmanuel Baptist Church or under my leadership as a pastor. I do not consider Joyce Meyer to be orthodox I do not consider her teaching to be in line with our church, and I do not want the women of our church influenced by Joyce Meyer. And the lady got all mad with me, started huffing and puffing, and, and I said, listen, can you just do me a favor? Would you spend a week researching, go to her website, go to other websites, look and see what her beliefs are, and then come back to me and tell me what you found? And so that was some godly wisdom I, 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 that the Lord, I think, just gave me there early in my ministry um, because I could have probably told her off and pulled out all my you know, top 10 reasons why you shouldn't listen to Joyce Meyer. But anyway, she went and li- listened, li- you know, did, did her own research. She went and um, I think she actually emailed Joyce Meyer some theological questions and got the questions back and showed them to me. And She came to me. She said, Pastor Sean, you're so right. We should not be doing this Bible study. She's way off. And so that was a great moment when um, the, the, these ladies in our church were um, in a false teaching, I think, with Joyce Myers, and then they were able to get out of that uh, through, through discerning the, the Scriptures and what the Scriptures say about her teaching. And so, you know, all around us, we have to be discerning. And so it brings up our second question. What exactly is discernment? we talk about we need to be discerning, we need to use discernment, I think we all kind of know what that means. But biblically, what does it mean? Well, I want us just to look at some passages of Scripture, and I want to read these passages, and I just want to comment on, on the nature of what these tell us discernment really is. So the first passage of Scripture is Proverbs 17, 24. It says this, The discerning sets his face toward wisdom, but the eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. So the Proverbs, the writer of Proverbs here would tell us that discernment and wisdom are intrinsically tied together. You need to have wisdom. So discernment and wisdom are very closely linked together. Discernment is not just knowing the truth, that's very, very important. But I think discernment is knowing the truth so much so that you can have the godly wisdom to be able to distinguish truth from error in particular situations that confront you. That There's wisdom involved. Hosea 14.9 Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them. But transgressors stumble in them. So again, wise, understanding, discerning, all of those words, especially in the Hebrew language, in the Old Testament, kind of intrinsically linked together. But this is in relationship to the ways of the Lord. Not only do you know the ways of the Lord, but you walk in them. So being discerning is not just having the head knowledge of what God's word says, but actually the wisdom to live it out in practical ways through obedience. One of the famous passages is what Paul teaches in Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now this is talking about discerning the will of God, but it's intrinsically linked to having a transformed, renewed mind. So one of the clear and most powerful ways that Christians can become more and more discerning is to be having their minds constantly renewed by the power of God's Word. When you are exposing yourself to God's Word, when you're studying God's Word, when you're being transformed by God's Word, when your mind is being renewed by, by God's Word, you're in, you have the mind of Christ. You have a biblical worldview, and you're able to discern more frequently and more easily truth from error. We also know that some people may have this spiritual gift. 1 Corinthians 12.10 says that there is the ability to distinguish between spirits we can't go into all of what that means as far as the spiritual gifts but there seems to be uh, maybe some people that have some christians that have been endowed by the holy spirit sovereignly with a spiritual gift of discernment now that doesn't mean that just because you don't have the spiritual gift of discernment you should not practice discernment that's like saying well i don't have the gift of evangelism so maybe i shouldn't be evangelistic Or I don't have the gift of hospitality, so I probably shouldn't open my home to a stranger when they come. I mean, you can play that whole game that I don't have this gift. I shouldn't be able to do what the Bible calls me to do. I just think that the Bible teaches there may be some individuals that have a a supernatural, Holy Spirit-empowered gifting to be able to discern things maybe at a higher level than the average Christian. But we're still all called to discern. And this is what Paul says in in Ephesians 5.10. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord? Well, how do you know what's pleasing to the Lord? It's not just random. It's not just subjective. It's the scriptures. It's what the Bible teaches. We can be praying for it. Philippians 1.9, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge in all discernment. So Paul's even praying for the Philippian church that they would grow in their discernment. So I think it's something that you need to seek. It's something you need to be praying for. It's something that you need to be having your mind transformed by the scriptures. And then um, Hebrews talks about um, the the constant use. Uh, Hebrews 5.14, solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice, to distinguish good from evil. That that passage of Scripture teaches a lot about discernment. Number one, discernment must be trained by constant practice, meaning that the more that you are discerning, the more that you're putting it into practice, the more you're going to be able to discern truth from error. It it comes through constant use, and you're able to distinguish good from evil. 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test The spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. So, with these passages of Scripture in mind, we can kind of get a building block here of what discernment is it's using godly wisdom to understand truth from error. It is not just knowing right theology, it's as important as that is, but it's also walking in the right way of living, to walking in the way of the Lord. It's to have your mind constantly being renewed by the Scriptures. It is to try to learn what is, to, is, is pleasing to the Lord, uh, to be praying for discernment in yourself, in your family, in your church, uh, constant use, to be trained by it, and then to test the Spirit's. So number, question number one, why is discernment necessary? Well, we live in a wacky world. We live in a strange world. We live in a spiritually confused world, and there's no shortage or lack of uh, theological nut jobs and just flat-out charlatans and false teachers and all this types of stuff, and it's always been around. It was around in Jesus' day, it was around in Paul's day, and it's around in our day. But here's another question. Should we ever mention actual names of false teachers or should we just be generic is there a time a place to name drop for example should we say creflo dollar is a heretic and you should avoid him jesse duplantis should you name these guys should you say so and so is a false teacher some people are uncomfortable with that that they feel like you shouldn't really be calling out people's names um, they felt like it's too negative if you, if you call somebody out. And this requires some discernment too. Um, I think we have a biblical example of this. Um, listen to 1 Timothy 1, 18-20. Listen to what Paul tells Timothy. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Okay, so Paul says, listen, Timothy, you've got to hold fast. You've got to fight the good warfare. You've got to hold to the, to the faith. You've got to hold to the gospel. But there's some who've rejected the gospel. There's some that aren't holding to sound teaching. And what they've done is they've made shipwreck of their faith. And listen to verse 20. He names names, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Paul name drops in the inspired text. He could have just said, yeah, there's some that have blasphemed, there's some that have, have shipwrecked their faith, there's some that have rejected, and he, he could have mentioned no names whatsoever, but he specifically mentions two, Hymenaeus and Alexander. He mentions their, them by name. So all of us, he mentions it publicly in a letter. Now, in 2 Timothy... 4, 14 to 15, he mentions Alexander again. He says, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. Paul name drops again. This guy's name, whoever Alexander was, this coppersmith, he's named twice. And it could be, most scholars believe that he was probably, in, in the first Timothy passage, he was probably disciplined by Paul and excommunicated from the church. And in Second Timothy, he's probably the same guy coming back and causing problems and opposing Paul and just doing some crazy things to try to subvert Paul's ministry. And, and Paul says, Timothy, you got to watch out for this guy. This guy is a wolf in sheep's clothing, and I'm going to name names. So should we always name names? Here, here's where I think we need to be a little bit careful There is a difference between a flat-out heretic false teacher like the Word, Faith, Prosperity guys versus calling out names of people that may differ on some minor doctrinal issues. For example, I'm not charismatic. I do not speak in tongues. I do not practice the sign gifts. I don't have a private prayer language. I have friends that do. And I'm not going to name drop on some famous, orthodox, Bible-believing charismatic and say that he's gone off the rails and lump him into a category that may not be fair or for an Arminian for that fact. I would not call an Arminian a heretic. And so I think we need to be careful when we throw around the words heretics or false teachers. And when we use names, we need to make sure we get all the information that we look at the totality of a person's ministry. Not just maybe one clip that was taken out of context, a soundbite. I wouldn't like my sermons to be taken out of context. And somebody take one snippet of what I said and built a whole um, assessment of me and my ministry based upon one little soundbite. We need to examine the whole fruit and that sometimes takes time and that takes effort and it's easy to tweet and it's easy to get little sound bites and to build um, a case against somebody without looking at the totality of their whole life. Now, in a public forum, this is where I also hear people saying, well, you should not criticize somebody unless you go to them privately and practice the Matthew 18 model, where you go to them privately, you, you talk about how they've sinned against you. And, and I think that's a different context. In Matthew 18, Jesus is talking about personal sin, where somebody has personally sinned against you, you go tell it to your brother. You go confront it. That person has personally sinned against you. Theology and public statements that are made on a podcast, on a sermon, on a sermon audio, on a on a TV program, from a person who's putting these views out publicly for people to hear, that's different. It's not like that person is sinning against you purposely, that person is expressing ideas that are contrary to scripture. And I think if they're making public statements, you, if you feel, you know, if you feel like this is what you need to do, can address those public statements in different formats without having to go privately. Because I oftentimes hear people say, you know, if, if some podcast guy out there, you know, slams another guy, there's often people that will say, well, did you go to that person privately? Did you go to that person and talk to them? Uh, did you did you did you, you know, work it out with them privately? Well that person may not even know the other person. They are addressing public statements that are being made. And so I think there's a little bit difference there. Now here's another question. What should our attitude in our tone be? This is where I think it gets a little bit difficult. We are to speak the truth in love. Now, there's a, there, there, You can go off the rails on two different areas there. If all you do is speak the truth and you're hateful and your tone is caustic and, and there's no love whatsoever, I'm wondering if you're, if you're following the passage of Scripture that teaches that speak the truth in love. If all you're doing is you're not speaking any truth but you're being lovey-dovey and politically correct and there's no you know you're not confronting or challenging, you're not living up to that. So we have to that fine balance of speaking the truth in love. But the question is, can we sometimes use harsh tone, strong language, can we be polemic? Can we be aggressive? And I would say Yes, at times it may be appropriate. At all times, probably not. Let me give you two examples in the Bible. One from Jesus and one from Paul. Okay? In Matthew 23, 27-28, Jesus pronounces a woe. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but with, within you are full of hypocrisy and lawless, lawlessness. Other times Jesus would call the Pharisees, you brood of vipers, you snakes, you whitewashed tombs. Now, does that sound politically correct, offensive? Does, does Jesus' tone sound harsh there? Yes. Jesus used a harsh tone when speaking with religious people. Now, here's where the rub comes. That was Jesus, and as the incarnate God in the flesh, he could get away with a whole lot more than we can because he was speaking the ultimate truth as God in the flesh and never sinned. So he could do that without sinning. Also, sometimes in these narrative passages in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we are given what Jesus said and not necessarily a prescription that we're supposed to follow what he did. You have to go to the New Testament epistles and other places to see, is this an example of what just happened, or are we actually commanded and taught to do this? Um, And and so I think you have to be be really careful there. Let me give you an example of Acts from Paul. This is Acts chapter 23. Uh, Paul's giving his defense before the Jewish leaders, Um, and this is what he said. Looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers... I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You should not speak evil of the ruler of your people." Okay, see what Paul does? Paul's giving his defense before the living God. He's in good conscience. Paul's saying that he's not been disobedient. He hasn't bashed Judaism. He hasn't spoken evil against the temple. He's been devoted to Christ. Paul's saying, listen, there's no charge you can bring against me. And then Ananias, the high priest, says, this is blasphemy. You know, Let, let this guy be struck in the mouth. What he, what's coming out of his mouth is blasphemy. It hit him in the mouth to, to, to silence him. And so that's what happens. He gets struck in the mouth, and Paul fights back. He calls him a whitewashed wall. He he, he basically lays into him. But then somebody says, listen, he's the high priest. And then Paul comes down and says, well, wait a minute. I I apologize. Um, I'm submissive. I didn't realize you were the high priest. Um, I need to be submissive. So you have an example there of of Paul using the same language of Jesus, but then backtracking once he finds out it's the high priest and apologizes. I'll give you an example of a time where I had to be very, very forceful. Um, There was a person that came into my office, and and this person had been involved in a cult. They were part of our church, left our church, got involved in a cult, distanced themselves, um, but then got disillusioned and started coming back. To the church, and as this person came back, they were a little bit combative, uh, wanting to try to you know test the waters to see you know what our theology was. And so this person came into my office and um, was proposing some really weird theology. And to protect this person, I'm not going to go into all of the theology that they were proposing. Just to say that it was um, it was wacky, it was unbiblical. And so I had this person read the text of scripture that taught directly against that. And, and, I, and I gave this person the Bible. I said, read this out loud, please. Well, they read it, and they said, well, what version is this? And I said, well, this is the ESV. And she said, well, get the, get the King James Version. So I, I went and said, okay, I'll get the King James. I'll get the New American Standard. Whatever version of the Bible you want, you can read it with your own mouth and, and with your own eyes. So I went and got my King James. This person read it. They kept reading it, and, and they kept saying, but, but. And they kept reading. I said, read it again. But, but they were basically reading the scripture out loud in my presence and basically combating what that scripture taught with every type of, um, of excuse or whatever. And finally, I just, and my secretaries will tell you, my ministry assistants will tell you this is the only time they've heard me got, got loud. I got loud and I said, listen. Right now, you are defying the Word of God. You're reading the Word of God out loud. It's in front of you, and you are not being submissive to the Word of God. You need to submit right now. What you're doing is sinful. And I said it like in that type of intensity. And this person kind of backed down and said, you know, whoa, whoa. It kind of calmed down. And then, you know, the the conversation ended. Well, about two weeks later, this person came back and said, I need to apologize to you. I realize now that I was in a cult. I was wrong. I was sinful. I was not submitting to God's word. And if you had not gotten in my face that day to show me my error, I don't know where I'd be. So I want to thank you for confronting me with truth. So there are times, especially in pastoral ministry, where you've got to be really, really gentle. You've got to walk beside somebody. You've got to be gentle. You've got to be like a loving, caring mother. Paul says we were like a tender, in First Thessalonians, says we were like a mother to you, nursing you. Sometimes as a pastor, you've got to mother people. Other times as a pastor, you've got to father people. And you've got to say, listen, the buck stops here. We, you better shape up. And you have to get in their face at times. That's, that's what it means to admonish someone. So when do you admonish someone strongly and when do you show gentleness and compassion? I think that requires discernment. I think the Holy Spirit gives you the help during those times. And sometimes you don't always get it right. The main point is we live in a world where discernment is very, very important. And you know, there, there's a lot of different podcasts you can listen to. Some, I think, cross the line on polemics and can become a little bit too um, extreme. Um, I think others may be too manby pamby and they don't address issues. I think you've got to filter everything through the Scriptures, and I think one of the things you have to understand is what's your role. Uh, I think sometimes pastors or people try to be something that they're not. Uh, you got to know who you are. I'm not a polemicist. I'm not an apologist. I'm a pastor. I'm a pastor teacher. I'm a shepherd. I've got the same flock of people that I'm pastoring and ministering and walking through life together. I have this podcast. Now, through this podcast, I don't know who's listening. And so I may be a pastor to you but not really. I, I'm more of a preacher or a teacher, and you have no idea who I am. You've never met me, but maybe you like listening to this podcast because you learned something. But I don't know you. I'm not in your home. I, I'm not in your life. I don't know your kids. I haven't married you. I haven't buried you. I haven't gone to visit you in the hospital. I haven't walked through difficult times with you when, when, when your family member has cancer. And so so as a pastor, you have to understand that you live with your sheep day in and day out. And it's very easy to get on a podcast you know, in the privacy of your own studio or wherever you are and start ranting and railing and giving all these things and not really having to deal with people. And so I just need to know your limitations and and know who it is that God's called you to be. And so some of you may listen to this and say, well, how come Pastor Sean never really gets polemic? And how come he never really gets um, way out there and dealing with all these different things? That's number one, not my giftedness. Other people are more gifted at that. Number two, it's not my calling. Other people may be called to that. I do this podcast as a way to help listeners and especially my church family that listens to to understand some of the, the tenets of Christianity and also to provide um, some theological direction for, for issues that, that have come up from time to time. Um, but, but I'm not going to be the, the polemical guy that's going to go on a rampage and is going to um, be on Facebook all day long and tweeting and, 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 and you know just posting all these things and just be angry all the time. Um, f- for one, I don't have the time to do that. Um, I've got to shepherd my flock and shepherd my family and, and, and other things like that, and, 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 you know, and other people are gifted at that. So my main point is that I need to lead my congregation to be discerning, and I would say this, I've seen a huge change, and, and I went back, I lost my train of thought, when I first came to the church, not that it wasn't theologically sound, um, but I, I, I see that now, after being here almost 11 years, that we have so much higher level of discernment. We don't have any of those um, weird things going on behind the scenes. Um, normally, when, when somebody has a question, many people are quick. I, I can't tell you how many Facebooks or emails or texts I get a month with people asking, hey, is this person good? Is this a good source? Should I be listening to this? What about this? Um, and, and so we've got that culture in our church where people are, are, are wondering what they should be listening to. And not that I police it and not that we, you know, we're being legalistic about it, but just people want to make sure that they're being discerning. And one of the ways to do that is to ask your pastor. If you trust your pastor, you trust your leader, then, then go to your elders and leaders and ask them. That's why God has put them in your life, to give you spiritual encouragement, to give you spiritual advice. That's why as pastors, we have the time to research and to see what's going on in culture, to be one step ahead. I always need to be one step ahead of my congregation on, on, on the heresies and, and weird stuff and weird people and all this stuff going on so that I'm not caught off guard. So if a person comes to me, and sometimes people come to me with somebody I've never heard of, and I need to go research them. And so discernment is very, very, very important. We're about out of time, and so I, I thank you for listening. Maybe you have a questioning, a discerning question that you want to ask Pastor Sean, and I maybe can answer it on a future podcast. I'd love for you to email me or Facebook me or even tweet about it, or you can even send me an Instagram picture. I don't, I don't care how you get it to me, but you can go to seancole.net, and you can find all my contact information there, and I would love to interact with you. Thank you again for listening to Understanding Christianity. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen to this podcast. I really do value uh, the fact that you are listening to this, that you're being blessed by it, that you're learning. And until next time, may God uh, cause His face to shine upon you. May He bless you and keep you. And would you have a great day in the Lord. Until next time, this is Pastor Sean Cole. Thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. Oh, mm-hmm. oh,